This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Would you want to breathe the air in Beijing or drink the water in Delhi? No, I wouldn't either. I'm Greg Dalton, and I'm with you on that one. The astounding economic growth in Asia the past few decades has followed the Western model. Grow now, clean up later. There is no later for the million Chinese people who die prematurely each year from air pollution. But there is an upside for Asian investors and entrepreneurs. A new generation of companies in China and around Asia are realizing there's money to be made in cleaning up the air, water, and land fouled by the mad dash to industrialize. Over the next hour, we will talk about the greening of Asia, what that means for Americans who like to breathe, drive cars, and have a retirement account. We're pleased to have with us three guests. Mark Clifford is the executive director of the Asia Business Council, a CEO group based in Hong Kong. He's author of The Greening of Asia, The Business Case for Solving Asia's Environmental Emergency. Stella Lee is CEO of BYD Motors, the American subsidiary of China-based BYD, an automotive and energy company with 150,000 employees. In case you're wondering, BYD stands for Build Your Dreams. And Orville Schell is director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York and a former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Mark Clifford, let's begin with a very interesting character uh, that you write about in your book. He studied physics in Australia, and he thought about opening a Chinese restaurant, but he did something else that had a profound impact upon what we're talking about today. Yeah, well, thanks, Greg, and thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, Xu Zhengrong started a company called SunTech. He went back to China, got some help from the local government to um, build a, a solar panel factory, and... Within a couple of years, he'd listed on the New York Stock Exchange, become the biggest solar company in the world, and completely changed the face of solar energy. Um, he was one of many Chinese companies, but the biggest, which uh, basically brought down the price of solar from a luxury to almost a, a, a giveaway commodity. Solar prices have fallen 95% or more in the last decade or so. And it was because of people like Xu Rong. There wasn't a happy ending, though, because he went bust. So it's, you know, the, the um, dynamic in China is unbelievable. Chinese manufacturers are changing the world in solar, in wind, in electric cars, as Stella will tell us about. But, um, you know, there are some ups and some downs. It's an entrepreneurial and uh, difficult business sometimes. Orville Schill, the Asia Society, acknowledged uh, Dr. Schur as a climate hero. Uh, by some accounts, China's invested $50 billion in solar not sure what they have to show for it. What do you take from the, the SunTech story and, and the solar story in China? Well, I think the story of Shu Zhenrong, you know, his and SunTech, I mean, in many ways, it is, bespeaks, I think, of the uh, immense dynamism in China, but also the incredible instability. And that people uh, of his intelligence, the size of his company, can sort of come and go, uh, you know, virtually overnight. 
And uh, of course, this can happen in, in any country uh, in business. But I, I think that, that there is an object lesson here about how uh, in a country that is sort of reinventing itself so profoundly, uh, there is this tremendous market instability, instability in any, every realm of life. Stella Lee, by some accounts, there's too many cars and too many car factories in China. Could there be a car bubble in China? And it could car overcapacity uh, happen something in, in the car sector like it did in the solar sector? Yeah, that's uh, actually SunTech's story for us is as a company's lessons learned. So there's a good, in next 10 years, China will be the biggest market for electric vehicle. So it's a lot of opportunity, but uh, then for every people want to participate, you don't overburn yourself. You need to like, take your opportunity, but at the same time develop solid and profitable products to satisfy the needs and also uh, grow your company step by step. Don't, don't like a bubble. Like an oversell. But your chairman has stated that BYD will be the world's biggest car producer by 2025. Is that kind of, is that ambition still in place or is that been <laughs> modified? Yeah, that's ambitious, but it's coming now because if we change the definition into the EV, actually today BYD just in June will already overtook the other competition, become the biggest electric vehicle in the world. And then in next five to ten years, BYD in the electric vehicle side, I think we will still continue to play very strong roles. So by the, because of the whole auto industry also uh, is changing from the convention car to the electric vehicle. So if by that definition, I believe BYD still have a big chance to be the world leader for EV. And speaking of big ambitions, uh, Orville Shell, this summer the Chinese stock market has crashed, been a bubble. You've written about that. What lesson is, can be learned from the, <clears throat> excuse me, from the crash of the Chinese stock market this summer? Well, I think, you know, uh, I, I should say I hope BYD succeeds because the more electric cars we have, the better chances mm-hmm. we have of overcoming climate change and many other problems. But I think the lessons of the stock market are really worth looking at because um, I think what we saw there was the collision between the two sort of different sides of China's modern personality. On the one side, the old system, Marxism, Leninism, centralized economy, command economy. On the other side, this kind of very vibrant market-oriented uh, new economy that sprung up. And these two things just came together like some extraordinary uh, atomic collider uh, when the bubble finally broke. And the government could not resist doing what uh, I think everybody who studies markets knows is a fatal move, move in and intervene and try to prop it up. So I think companies such as your own have these same kinds of dilemmas. On the one hand, there are all these kind of shadowy state controls and state-owned enterprises and things. On the other hand, you have these private companies that are trying to expand and operate according to these other principles. And it's very easy to have a kind of a, a, a clash of, of, of sort of economic civilizations, if you will. Mark Clifford, does that raise questions about the, the legitimacy or the sort of the, the credibility of the Chinese state? Um, well, let's pull it back to some of the companies we were talking about, these, these industries. China invested $90 billion last year. Chinese companies like BYD and solar companies 
in clean tech issues, in clean tech investments. $90 billion, that's almost as much as the U.S. and the EU put together. So, you know, their companies are going to come and go. There are going to be crashes. There are going to be bubbles. But the point is, what is happening in China right now in the clean tech area, the environmental area, is real. So, I, I you know, I, I'm loath to predict the future of the Chinese state. I'll leave that to Orville or, or others more suited than me. But uh, you, you, can, you can look at the, the, the ugly side of it. You can look at the glass half, half empty, or you can look at the glass half full. And I think when one looks at the, the track record of China since 1978 and reforms began... It's extraordinary. And we can look at companies like SunTech, which show the instability, but we can look at companies like Goldwind, and, which is now the world's second largest wind turbine maker, or companies like BYD. And yes, there's a very difficult interplay between state and private sector, but what's going on in China in the environmental area is real, whether it's environmental policy or the clean tech companies. And is climate and clean energy an existential top-tier priority issue for the Chinese government, Orville Shell, or is it something that's, that's lower down the ranks? As it is in the United States, many Americans don't consider environmentalism in a top-five issue. Most American voters don't. Yeah, I mean, what an enormous paradox it is. I mean, we come from a country, America, that when we grew up, fancied ourselves as sort of rational, science-based Uh, And remember when Europe was kind of the voodoo Catholic land of backwardness? Well, it turns out that now we are steeped in our evangelical traditions. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of anti-scientific prejudice, whereas China is ruled by technocrats, people who grew up in that world, and there is much less sort of doubtful uh, attitude about, uh, I think, science and technology is the motor force of the future. So in this sense, I think China does have an edge uh, over an awful lot of uh, aspects of American society which don't believe in climate change, don't believe in evolution. They don't believe in, in any of the modern affectations that we once thought were very American. Interesting. Mark Clifford, you write in, in your book that there's a uh, quote someone from the World Resources Institute who said that China missed the Industrial Revolution, they were late to the IT revolution, and they want to lead in the clean energy revolution. Spin that out for us. Yeah, well, they, especially since the uh, financial crisis of 2008, which China wrote out very successfully without even going below 8% growth, um, they have put a lot of money into clean tech, broadly defined, and a large part of their stimulus program in 2008 and beyond were things like high-speed rail, uh, cheap, perhaps underpriced capital for solar, wind, uh, you know, very large-scale support for electric vehicles. So China is got a lot of money, and they're throwing it at clean tech because they see this, uh, and they see companies like BYD as an engine of growth for the future, very much to, to the quote that, that you mentioned. Uh, this is a growth area. It's jobs, it's money, it's leadership, it's global leadership. And I think we're seeing this in, in the policy area as well. Stella Lee, is the government throwing money at you? <laughs> no. Yeah, I just explained to, like, in our internal conversation, the only money we got is $20 million, that may be for R&D projects. It's small. But, uh, but, uh, $4 million, not very much. Okay. Yeah, $4 million is not too much. But uh, that's the only money we got from the R&D project. But uh, China did spend, a lot, gave a lot of incentive for the electric vehicle. And... Uh, did give a strong policy to building the charging station. So that's the, we're always joking, that U.S. talk a lot, but China talk less, but they did a lot. 
We call that walking the walk and talking the talk here. Yes. Yeah. 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 So by this reason, and another difference I see, the China is, has a more different approach. The, the money uh, go to the like, public uh, transportation more than private one. And then the, you will see like, the growth for EV, electric vehicle in China, is uh, <coughs> comparing the data with last year and the last two years. Every year is by 300%. So maybe U.S. did not feel the pressure, but in the next two years, you'll see China will be the global leader. Nobody can even close with them. Orville Shell, there's been a staggering number of people, a couple hundred million people who've moved into the middle class, into China's cities, out of poverty, another 300 million people behind yes. them. How China urbanizes will have a big impact on the global economy, certainly the global climate. Tell us about how that's going to shape out and what's the role of the personal car is going to be in that. Well, you know, there is something about a personal car, isn't there, that's part of everybody's dream, American, Chinese, you name it. But it's also the curse of modern civilization. And I think as we talk about what China is doing, and I agree with Mark, and I think his book really amplifies very nicely on all of the things it's doing in the environmental field, we forget at our peril that the problem confronting China is staggering, staggering. And they had several decades of really reckless uh, development, which did some destruction, which is not going to be so easy to repair. For instance, you see various percentages of of the land that has been uh, polluted, uh, that has been made toxic with polluted water. It's very high. You hear 20%, 25%, 10% different figures. That's going to take a long time to clean up. So these things do, we have to bear in mind, the problem is enormous. And a lot of people uh, and tremendous amount of numbers on small amounts of arable land and limited amounts of resources. Um, What I really worry about, though, is not cleaning up water and air. We know how to do that. What I worry about is cleaning up carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. That is a staggering task, which... I don't think any country has a handle on it. We have a clip of someone who uh, spoke here recently uh, speaking about her trip to China. This is uh, U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy, who went to Beijing, and she talked here at Climate One recently about going to the U.S. Embassy, and they had pollution uh, monitoring <laughs> measurements, and once uh, they were giving numbers that were different than what the, the Chinese government uh, said that yes. the pollution was, and then yeah. China was like, no, don't release those numbers, and then uh, eventually these were U.S. companies that were doing the, uh, the equipment to monitor uh, pollution in, in Beijing, and eventually I think that information got out, because yeah. Beijing realized, hey, we can't hide this. So we're going to show uh, the video of U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy talking about her trip to China and dealing with pollution in China. We spent a long time talking to them about, you now know you have an air pollution problem. You've got to fix it. Would you mind thinking about that in concert with a carbon strategy? Because they go hand in hand. So, Orville Shell, I think I first heard this from you a couple years ago when we talked. Can China solve conventional pollution problems, smog in Beijing, and solve climate at the same time? Or is there a way to do one and not the other? No, I think they, they, they can. I think they are more inclined to solve the problem of air pollution, water pollution, conventional kinds of pollution, because in an immediate way that is affecting people 
people know it, and they feel tremendous pressure to do that. But I do think that in cleaning up air pollution, there is an opportunity also through things like electric cars, uh, wind power, all the conventional things you know about, to mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So I think while they don't have as powerful an instinct because it's not as immediate a problem as these conventional kinds of pollution, I think they're certainly not against it, and there is a great opportunity to do these things together. They could, for example, just export coal to the West out in Xinjiang and ship the electricity in and basically do what America does, put the pollution in the disempowered minority areas and uh, solve that problem but not solve the climate problem. Well, they already have coal out in Xinjiang. They don't have to move it. And uh, there are not a lot of people out there. It's a pretty good place to burn coal and get solar energy. Stella Lee, what do you think? Is China going to solve both or just solve the more conventional pollution problem that people see? Yeah, I think the first answer should be China have to solve that. If not, how about the 1.3 billion people live? How about their future? There's no any other solution. So, but now the difference is now China has money. China has a resource. So when the pressure came and the more people realized, they will find a solution. So I believe, like a, even like a, with recently, BYD, the technology provider, gave the evidence to government saying, we have the technology available here to support you generate clean energy, get rid of all the cold generation, like use wind farm, use solar farm to generate electricity, and use battery to store electricity. So you can make the wind farm, solar farm to be independent generation. And then the second, for transportation, electric vehicle, electric trucks, electric bus, it's reliable, it's working, the technology is ready. Change. So now we, I feel like it's in the stage in China to really move the whole country off all the kind of technology which produce a lot of pollution to the cleaner technology completely. So now China has a different mindset and then have, have, we have a resource, we have money, then we have people, we have a business opportunity. Mark Clifford, uh, Warren Buffett owns about 10% of BYD. What do you make of that? <laughs> I, well, I, I can ask a lot of She's very pleased about it. Yeah, I want to hear from you. When... Well, I, I think it's interesting because uh, Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway have invested a lot in energy assets, and I think they understand actually BYD is way more than an electric vehicle company. It started out as a battery maker, and they made batteries for mobile phones and lots and lots of products. And above all, it's a storage company. If Stella and her boss, Mr. Wang Chuen Fu, can solve the storage problem, the battery problem, then we've gone a long way towards making things like solar and wind really part of the grid. And we don't need to build as many coal-fired power plants. So I think, again, there are so many companies doing so many exciting things in China. It's, you know, I'll let Warren Buffett try to pick the winners. But, uh, you know, there are losers like SunTech. There are companies like BYD. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of companies Spending this, that was one year of $90 billion invested in clean tech. So some will work, some won't. The Chinese government's serious about it. Chinese companies see an opportunity. And we can talk about problems. I can spin a doomsday scenario, you know, long past the, the, the close of this program. But there is a lot of good news coming out of China. And Orville Schell, one of the good news that came out was the U.S.-China pact last year where President Obama and the president of China basically changed the international geopolitics of climate and did a deal. They're the two biggest emitters. About half of the global emissions come from those two countries. How did that 
What's the significance of that deal? Well, I think it's, it, it remains to be seen, but it's potentially, I think, uh, a real game-changing moment uh, because the U.S. and China are the really only two players that matter. If those two players don't um, cooperate on the climate change remedy front, then we won't have a remedy. So I think that U.S.-China relations of late have not been particularly good, and I would say have every potentiality of getting worse. However, the bright spot is cooperation on climate change. And I think if we can elaborate uh, out from that, uh, it has the chance of actually helping the global climate change problem as well as helping U.S.-China relations. So on areas like uh, uh, territorial disputes in the South China Sea, cyber espionage, hacking into the U.S. federal government, those sorts of things, there's tension. But on climate, you think there's alignment of U.S. and China interests because we're all, we got one planet and they're the two biggest polluters. I think more and more there is, and it's voluntary. These aren't uh, legally binding treaty obligations, and that is what China has been asking for, and that's where Copenhagen fell apart. So I think there actually is a possibility here for us to get together on this front and use that as a kind of an emblem of those areas where there is a common interest, because there's so many other areas where there isn't. And one uh, characteristic is that because it's voluntary non-binding, a next U.S. president could come in and take a different course, whereas is it fair to say China might be more likely to stay the course once they set it or not? Is that naive? Well, I mean, all you have to do is just um, take a look in the Republican barrel at the, how many candidates, 16? And I can't think of, well, maybe one of them uh, who really has a position on China. So this is really a crapshoot. Uh, and I do think it's, that's one of America's great problems is presidents come and go and policies come and go, whereas China has a nice five-year plan. We used to laugh at five-year plans. Mm-hmm. Now I think we have a kind of a new respect for them. We're talking about uh, Greening Asia at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are uh, Stella Lee from BYD, the Chinese storage and energy company, Mark Clifford, a reporter and author from Asia, and Orville Schell, head of the China Studies Program at the Asia Society. I'd like to go to our lightning round where I ask a quick yes or no question to each of the guests, uh, beginning with Orville Schell. Uh, yes or no, the dive in China's stock market presents a buying opportunity. Americans should jump into the Chinese stock market, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> Not so fast. <laughs> <clears throat> Stella Lee, Tesla's stock is overvalued. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, Mark Clifford, uh, you're in Hong Kong. It's one of the world's financial centers. Hong Kong is unprepared for the impacts that severe weather will bring to its economy and financial markets. Yes or no? I think Hong Kong is prepared. Unusually, I do. Yeah. Orville Schell, the politicization of climate in Washington, D.C. gives China an edge in the clean tech race. Yes. Stella Lee, hydrogen is a promising fuel for powering personal mobility. No, (laughs) definitely no. (laughs) Mark Clifford, uh, China's commercial espionage efforts target clean energy companies. Don't know. But they have in the past. They certainly have. All right, how'd they do? Let's give a round for our uh, thanks to our audience. 
we, we haven't talked about India, Orville Shell. Uh, you know, a lot of talk about the dragon and the elephant in, in Asia. Uh, how do you see that playing out in terms of clean energy, clean economy? Uh, the U.S.-China pact put a fair amount of, pres- of pressure on President Modi, but they haven't done as much on energy as China has. No, and I think, you know, uh, India has not had the big run-up, that period of kind of dirty development before you get to the green development. And the other thing to remember is India has a lot of really dirty coal. Cheap, easy, and dirty. So I think India may have, have a, uh, a very difficult time uh, reaching this sort of an initial phase of, of uh, rapid development that we now see China sort of coming to the end of. Mark Clifford, any uh green prospects coming out of uh, India. I, I rode in a Riva electric car in Delhi a few years ago. Pretty cool. I think to, um, well, uh, to Orville's point, India has a different set of problems. And because there's not a, enough electricity and it's intermittent, you can't count on it because water is scarce. Green buildings are really phenomenal in India because they don't have the electricity. They don't have the resources. They have to use energy and resources more efficiently. They're investing a lot in solar and wind. And, of course, Modi also wants to invest a lot in coal. I'm hoping that they won't actually be able to come through on the latter, and they will, in fact, come through on the former. But I don't know. India has been a lot more talk than action. China tends to under-promise and over-deliver on, on um, pledges, and I wouldn't say that's true of India. So it's, it's hard to say. Still a lead? Do you worry about Riva or other electric car challengers coming out of India, or do you think not much competition for BYD? No, because I, I believe India will be very challenging to really do similar thing like in China. Because to promote electric uh, vehicle, you demand the government is very strong, and the Chinese government system is best fit to implement this kind of new industry, new infrastructure. But in the like India and even in U.S., Westernized government system will be very weak, have a lot of weakness to. Do that because the government has no power to push. <laughs> Unlike the Chinese government, the mayor, the president, the statement, do it tomorrow. Everything will move. Will happen. Orville Shell, there's sometimes uh, <laughs> a point of view in the United States uh, that the Chinese central government snaps their finger and, and the f- country falls in line. In fact, uh, Tom Friedman from the New York Times had a chapter in his book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, China for a Day, that said, oh, if we could have the, the tools, if the U.S. government could have the tools that Chinese government has that could do some grand gestures. Is that really true? Does, is that really true <laughs> that China has the well, centralized <laughs> power? I think it's true until it stops being true. (laughs) And uh, I think, you know, India's virtue is it can have the entire state of Gujarat blow up and the rest of India hardly trembles. If China had such a thing, it would have dire repercussions because it's a much more brittle, more delicately balanced, and it has a pretension to control things. So this is a great strength, as Stella has pointed out. It's also an enormous weakness because when push comes to shove and you can't control, uh, then the Indian model is much, more, is much superior, has higher survival rate. So, you know, I, I, I think China's done some amazing things, and its, uh, it's uh, uh, economic development isn't paralleled in world history. But sometimes I worry that it's so tightly wound that when something breaks loose, it can have a kind of a very infectious uh, uh, effect on the system as a whole. And it's a big danger. 
could unravel quickly. Um, we had Hank Paulson here recently talking about China, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, and talked about how some things, press freedoms, et cetera, have gone backwards recently in China rather than forward. So liberalization isn't a linear, always moving forward kind of thing. Is that true, Orville? I think it's, it's very true. I think uh, uh, President Xi is, is, is very concerned about maintaining stability, and, and that means controlling things like the media, education, civil society, and we just don't know how that will impact, for instance, on China's ability to be spontaneous, innovative, and dynamic. Mark Clifford, you write about some real success stories, innovation stories in your book. Uh, Manila water was an interesting one because it provides water to uh, residents in Manila and also uh, return to shareholders. Tell us that one. Well, it, uh, Manila Water is a great success story, but it, it reflected the unfortunate fact that the Philippines government couldn't really supply water to the residents of a fast-growing capital city. And uh, they uh, gave two concessions out. One of them worked spectacularly well. One of them didn't. So just privatizing is no easy answer, especially for something as sensitive as water. But Manila Water was able to start a virtuous circle where a private company um, got the concession, invested a lot of money in effectively giving everyone water and then actually collecting money from the the people who were taking the water. In the past, most of the water had leaked or been stolen. And so these things can happen. The private sector can really solve problems. And that's one of the points of my book is that if government policies can work with private sectors and work with civil society, private... businesses can often solve really granular problems like getting water to your house. So when you turn on the tap, water comes out. But tough, still tough. Is that going to be the trend in Asia where everything's a product commercialized? A lot of people in the United States worry about the privatization of water being treated like a commodity and then profit motive getting in there. That's that's challenging to some Americans. It's, I think it's challenging to everyone. And so, in fact, Manila Water, in some ways, has been a victim of its success because it's done so well for its shareholders that there's been a lot of political pushback. Uh, so I, I think especially when it comes to things like water, things that we have to have to survive, um, it's very difficult to have the private sector running things. But in some places, Cambodia is another example where the private water supply has been a phenomenal success. But these tend to be places where the government can't deliver the services. So it's not a panacea. I've heard people say that those having for-profit water companies works when you have a strong government who can have good, strong contracts and keep an eye on the companies where the, basically the companies aren't smarter and stronger than the governments. You need a good regulatory structure, just as you have a regulatory structure here to make sure you have, a, you have you know, more or less monopoly utilities or that's changed. But you, know, you need a strong state. You need strong civil society. You have to have the press. You have to have environmental organizations. That's something India has. China doesn't. So I think you, it has to be a three-way kind of uh, partnership. Water is a big concern in northern China, Orville Shell. Uh, moving, there's big, uh, huge engineering projects to move water up north. Uh, the Himalayan glaciers are melting. They provide water to a billion people. How's that going to play out? Well, this is an enormous problem. As you know, China's divided. The north is dry. The North China Plain, the south is wet, south of the Yangtze. So the largest engineering project in world history is the South-North Water Transfer Project to bring water to the North China Plain. There are many problems. A lot of the water is very polluted. Uh, It's very expensive. And I think here, actually, there's a really interesting prospect uh, for the state of California, which is now having severe water problems, (laughs) to maybe collaborate with China to see how do we deal in this century with what is going to be the scarcity of all scarcities, 
namely water. As weather ch patterns change, as climate change increases, rivers change their flow patterns. Uh, and I think actually uh, the federal government in Washington really can't do this as well as the state could do it. So I think these are the kinds of innovative areas that we have to start looking at where we see there isn't a common problem and there's much to be gained by a, a finding a common solution. Mark Clifford, Singapore has become something of a water innovator. They have invested a lot in water innovation. It's not a, a, a wet area. Tell us about Singapore's well, innovation in water. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who, of course, was the founding father of Singapore, just passed away recently, was a, was a young man when the Japanese invaded. And one of the reasons they were able to take supposedly impregnable Singapore was that they cut the water supply, which was cover, coming from neighboring Malaya. And when Lee Kuan Yew uh, declared independence with the document in the United Nations, he stapled a water treaty with Malaysia to the back because he knew that water was an existential threat. And he and his uh, countrymen worked, have been working for the last 50 years to get water independence. And they've pretty much done that with a combination of desalination, recycled sewage water, collecting every drop that, that falls. And, um, you know, they, they're, they're on their own. And like Israel, they knew that they can't survive without water. Unfortunately, big countries like China and the U.S. tend to sort of think there's lots of water around. And I think we have to have a more Singaporean kind of approach. Uh, the Chinese and often the U.S. think there's an engineering uh, you know, solution to every problem. And a lot of it is, is a very human issue of dealing with a real hard stop issue. Because when the water comes out, you know, it's finito, right? It doesn't really matter how much money you have if you don't have water. Stella Lee, is water a factor for, for BYD? No, we mainly deal with air quality issue, less experience for water. So you're uh, based in Los Angeles. You're making buses. Is, uh, are we going to see more BYD buses, more BYD cars in, in America? Yes, definitely. Actually, we're just uh, growing our manufacturing in Lancaster, California, expanding our bus manufacturing here, and also introduce our electric vehicles to the Uber service. So in next several years, you will see the, our more like electric buses and also the electric trucks and also EV. And then maybe in several years, you will see BYD car, uh, consumer car. And in the, the pattern has been for Asian car companies, Japanese, Korean, et cetera, to start with kind of the low, cheap ones and mm -hmm. then go to the higher end. Are you mm -hmm. selling cheap Bad ones, or are you going to sell good ones? <laughs> we're so good. <laughs> so we're so good one, but uh, we sell like a uh, like a normal people affordable green energy. So oh, our approaches will be very different. So that's a little dig at Tesla. Uh, so Tesla's the, the rich man's car. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they are toys. Yeah. <laughs> toys for rich men. Yes. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, are you going to make cars in the United States or are you going to import them? Uh, like when the volume, the market grow to a certain level, we have to produce here. So like during our, within our 10 years, like a business plan in U.S., we do have plan to produce a car here. We're talking about greening Asia at Climate One. You just heard from Stella Lee, the CEO of BYD Motors, a Chinese car company based in Los Angeles. Orville Shell, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. We also have Mark Clifford, executive director of the Asia Business Council and author of the new book, The Greening of Asia. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be right back after this break. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. China has made progress towards clearing up its urban skies, but those changes come at a cost for some of its poorer citizens. 
Richard Martin is the author of Coal Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet. In researching his book, he found that even as large cities like Beijing shut down their coal plants, the environmental burden is being shifted to China's remote provinces. What China is doing, and, and this is a very mixed blessing, is shutting down those illicit, unlicensed mines that for years and years have been operated in the provinces. What that means, unfortunately, is they're concentrating the coal mining in these huge operations, and they're building big power plants and cement plants and other industrial facilities that rely on coal right essentially at the mine mouth. And they're undertaking the largest electricity transmission project in the history of the world to basically ship that electricity to the coast. They're shutting down the coal plants in Beijing and Shanghai, but essentially they're moving it to the interior, which is not going to help the, the climate. That was author Richard Martin speaking at Climate One in April of 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Um, Orville Schell, climate will affect some of the most vulnerable people in Asia who contributed least to climate change. How is that going to be dealt with uh, in China and elsewhere, dealing with these vulnerable populations who are poor, living close to nature, close to the sea? Well, we just recently at the Asia Society did a map of what things will look like when sea level rises if all of the ice melts on the planet, and it's not a pretty picture. You lose a a good chunk of China, all of Shanghai, the Yangtze Delta, et cetera, et cetera. So the stakes, I think, are very, very high, and uh, many people in the poorest countries uh, will be affected both by rising sea level and also by diminished flows of, of rivers, uh, as, as many of you know, the, all of the great rivers of Asia rise in the Tibetan Plateau, and during certain critical seasons when the monsoon stops, they're fed by glacial melt. You lose the glaciers, you have rivers that don't run all year round, and it was around exactly those rivers that all the great civilizations of Asia have arisen, from the Yellow River to the Yangtze to the Salween, the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, the Brahmaputra, you name it. So this is, not, uh, this is no kind of uh, small-scale problem. This is basic plumbing for billions of people. And uh, it seems to me that uh, we are just on the precipice of, of this problem running away so that we can't solve it. And this is why it's so important that the U.S. and China, if they do nothing else, lean into this one. Could I, could I jump Mark in there? One thing you didn't mention is, is more frequent and more severe storms. Uh, I was down in the... Or uh, less storms. Well, or less. But a uh, place like um, Myanmar uh, had, a, had a storm, a killer storm in the spring, May 2008. It killed 138,000 people, right? And, you know, it made the news in the U.S., but 138,000 people. You asked if Hong Kong was ready. Hong Kong has the engineering. It has the buildings. But when you're living on the Burmese Delta and a killer storm comes in, you're wiped out. And I went to visit one of those villages uh, that the Asia Business Council was involved with rebuilding one of the schools. And um, it took me a minute to realize why a seventh grade class was learning about what my interpreter described as the weather changing. It's like, oh, yeah, the weather changing. That is a matter of life and death for people in Bangladesh, Burma, the Philippines. They are literally on the front lines of climate change. And it is, you know, this is one of the great moral challenges of our time as well, and and we forget that, that it is the people who are the poorest, who did the least to cause this problem, who are the most vulnerable. What gives you hope? 
Uh, I, I believe that human ingenuity and human spirit, and after we've tried everything else, we usually do the right thing. Um, not always. And I think, unfortunately, there will be many, many more climate casualties. But I think that uh, the U.S.-China uh, agreement, China's recent pledges uh, in the run-up to the Paris uh, climate talks, I feel that you know at least we're starting to slowly turn the ship. I mean, it wasn't until 2007 that, climate, that China even talked about these issues, and now it's become a major focus of Chinese policy. We have a president now who, who believes this is a serious issue, who believes in science. So, you know, these are the two countries that are going to make it happen. I think our private sector, our governments, and our, at least in the U.S., civil society will really make a difference. Orville Shell, one area we haven't really touched on, uh, food security. Obviously, water and food are very connected. You t- mentioned briefly China has a very small amount of arable land, uh, how is the food situation going to play out in China, given this changing climate, the uncertainty about the weather hitting food production? Well, I think uh, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, when you have such concentrations of population on places like the North China Plain and diminished rainfall and rapidly falling water tables, and if you drive across the North China Plain, you pass river after river after river, bridges with freeways, nice bridges, and nothing, no water. In fact, they're, all, they're, they're so dry that people have started to farm in the riverbed. So you, you see this, and this is within, within my lifetime, within your lifetime. These are radical changes that have been brought about by, uh, by we, we don't really quite know what, but we know they've happened. So um, I think technology is on our side if we can mobilize it. Politics, I don't know. I mean, politics is a strange animal, and... Uh, different in every country. But uh, if we can't get politics aligned with technology, we're going to be in for a world of hurt. One big change on the global stage right now is this potential deal with Iran, uh, which could be kind of like a Nixon to China opening kind of moment between the U.S. and Iran. It also could bring Iranian oil onto the global markets, Orville Shell, which could make oil cheaper, which could make it easier to steep keep mainlining this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, uh, this every, every reaction has an equal and opposite reaction, and there are pluses and minuses to the Iran deal. But one thing I would say, if we can untie the knot that existed between the U.S. and Iran, we ought to be able to untie the knots that exist between the U.S. and China. And that is going to be infinitely of, of, of more consequence than the Iran deal. Mark Clifford, energy security and independence. I think what's interesting is the price of oil has collapsed. It's fallen by more than half. And yet solar installations, wind installation, clean tech investment worldwide is skyrocketing. Oil is mostly used for transportation now. It's not used for making electricity. The Chinese use coal for electricity, and coal is the problem. China burns almost half of the world's coal. China and the U.S., as you said, are responsible for almost half the world's greenhouse gas emissions. We've got to focus on coal Oil prices falling. Oil's used for transportation. We're going to keep using it for plastics, but coal's the problem, not oil. Mark Clifford is executive director of the Asia Business Council and author of the new book, The Greening of Asia. We also have today here at Climate One, Orville Schell, director of the U.S.-China relations at the Asia Society, and Stella Lee from BYD Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. All right. Great panel. Thank you very much. Uh, Can you talk about the role of nuclear power in Asia and whether nuclear would be a solution for the climate problem in Asia? Mark Clifford? I'll take that. China has the world's most aggressive nuclear program. Um, They're going to 
basically be about the size of the French nuclear industry um, uh, by 2020. It's barely a drop in the bucket. It goes from 3% to 5 or 6% of China's uh, power needs. In France, the same amount of nuclear produces about 80% of the needs. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in the all-of-the-above camp. I, I, I'd like to see more nuclear power. I think Japan should figure out a way to get some of its nukes back on. But uh, there is a lot of public opposition in China as well as in other places. It's a lot harder since Fukushima to build nuclear power plants. Taiwan built one and decided not to turn it on. That may or may not have been a mistake. But unfortunately, it's not really a solution. I think we need to focus a lot more on things like energy efficiency, which won't require these huge and, you know, uh, politically difficult central power plants. Orville Shell, any thoughts on nuclear power? It certainly depends a lot on the uh, people worry about safety. I think China, you know, we've seen some bridge collapses, some, some high-speed rail collapse in China. We worry about, mm, what's going on at the nuclear plants? Well, I mean, nuclear power is a godsend if you worry about carbon emissions. Uh, it's exactly the opposite when they blow up, uh, <laughs> as, we, as we saw in Fukushima. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, I, I would be very circumspect, particularly in the case of China, where things, sometimes construction techniques are not uh, quite up to standards, and, and management sometimes isn't up to standards. I mean, it's no joke to have a nuclear power plant that, that, that goes awry. I think there's much greater opportunity to use renewables like wind, uh, and solar. The big problem, as Stella has pointed out, is storage. Yes. If we solve the storage problem, and batteries are not the really efficient way to store unless they get much more efficient, then we really have a solution. Until that, uh, we're stuck with these episodic forms of energy that the sun comes out in the day, the wind blows when it blows, and what do you do the other times? Well, this is, this is the challenge we're confronting right now. Yeah. Still, yeah. Lee, that is the like holy grail. If you really crack uh, storage, you're going to be very wealthy and successful. But is, is the price of storage coming down? A lot of people think it's, it's been frustrating how slow the price of storage has dropped. Yeah, the storage price is coming down. Recently, I just made some calculation. If based on 20 years' lifetime, and then the current storage we can push to less than $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour. So that is, uh, I think, the similar price as uh, solar yeah, average. It's an affordable solution already. So I'll I give you another data. Is, uh, like a, our chairman, Mr. Wang, just made a calculation. If we cover 4% of the global desert with solar, then the, all the solar produces enough electricity for, all the, like, for our Earth to use. So it means nuclear just will be a small part of the solution, but in the end, the major part will be wind farm and the solar panel. Especially BYD as the private company demonstrate the technology is here, the solution is here. Now is the next uh, step is how we can really make this change through the policymaker to the like utility company to really change the whole industry. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I, I'm curious to bring this from a national level to a personal level. So um, I hear about people complaining about the air. My parents live in Sichuan, so every time I hear about them talking about the air quality is so bad, they live in suburb, but they go to the city to, to work. Um, I hear a lot about these complaints, but not enough on their side of doing something. They always complain about 
air quality being bad in the factories and everything else, and it seems to be a pro problem always on a national level instead of awareness level on an individual level. Um, so curious to hear when you guys visit the country, what are people there actually talking about on an individual level and if anyone is actually doing anything about it other than just complaining about what the government is doing? Who'd like to tackle that? Yeah. Mark Clifford? Uh, I think, look, it's a serious issue for people like your parents and uh, everybody who lives in Chinese cities. Uh, many of you are familiar with the uh, fantastic documentary that a, a CCTV a former journalist, uh, Chai Jing, did earlier this year, Under the Dome. Uh, downloaded 200 million, we've seen 300 million times in a couple of weeks talking about these issues. And I think Chai Jing does a great job of pointing out individual awareness is wonderful, but what really matters are structural changes. And one of my worries is that the Chinese state, the government, and its policymaking apparatus has been captured by special interests. Just, it happens in China just as it does in many countries. And the energy complex, the, the energy companies in China are very powerful, and yet they're not free. They're not free to set realistic prices, so pricing for electricity and everything else is really cheap, and it's cheap because they keep burning coal. And until you change this at a national level and until you start using steel factories and cement factories more efficiently, until you start really upgrading these things and really caring about energy efficiency and emissions, and uh, you penalize people and you fire them from their jobs at the local level when they break these laws, you're not going to have change. So everybody's aware of the problem, but I think it's really difficult for people to do anything about it. And that's why you need policy change, and that's why you need fundamental change throughout down to the local level. Orville Schell, there are a fair number of environmental protests in China, people venting, having any impact? Well, I think this is where China is somewhat challenged. Uh, the way in which the environmental movements have worked in the West, which isn't the only way, is that they have formed in civil society outside of government. And governments have been pushed, and then people in government who wanted to do something about uh, environmental problems were supported by sort of civil society working in, in a kind of synergistic way. Uh, China has a very ambivalent attitude. It's the Chinese Communist Party towards civil society organizations. It, it tolerates them and wants them in certain ways, but it does not appreciate their independence and the fact that they don't know when to stop, in the party's view, when to stop. It means they can be a threat, as they are in every country. So it doesn't have that particular feedback loop working well, nor does it have it in the media because the media is controlled. And if the media can't be criticizing a government's environmental policies, it may be a longer time before there's a remedy. One example is a person named Ma Jun who has a website that, that sort of names and shames some, some of the polluters. Uh, he hasn't been tossed in jail. Has he had any impact, either of you know? I think he Mark has, Clifford? but I think it's also true that uh, the focus in China tends to be overwhelmingly on foreign companies. And uh, it's, a lot, it's easier to go after foreign companies, and that's a start. But uh, Chai Jing in this um, documentary started going after the Chinese companies. And I think, to Orville's point, she was supported. There are very reformist elements within the Chinese government. She got a lot of help, but then it was shut down after two weeks. It was, you know, this is a very, very difficult yeah. tension. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Great, uh, great panel. My question has to do with China, and I was interested to know what the panel believes in terms of whether or not the Chinese government would ever take its foot off the economic accelerator to reduce uh, environmental pollution. And more specifically, 
as you know, we had double-digit growth rate in, in China, GDP growth rate, uh, up until the last few years. And, uh, and, and we know that that growth rate is equivalent to so much uh, coal burning and pollution. So I, I was just curious to know whether, whether you believe that the Chinese government would ever alter its growth rate to reduce pollution. I think that's very unlikely. And uh, I think one can understand why. Uh, they have an awful lot of very poor people. Uh, and this is precisely the tension which exists in all of the global uh, sort of international climate change negotiations that they say the West went through other developed countries, their growth spurt. They put all the carbon up there. It's still up there. Now it's China's turn. Why shouldn't they get to do the same thing? Well, we can answer that, but uh, there's a certain uh, logic to it. So I think this is w why China is demanded that the developed countries make a $100 billion fund available to help the developing countries uh, diminish their greenhouse gas emissions. So the developing countries have not been so willing to do that. So we're at a bit of a standoff here. But I don't think you're going to see uh, Beijing anytime soon saying, oh, well, let's just go with 3% growth rate. We don't want to pollute the, the atmosphere with too much CO2. It's not going to happen. And it won't happen in India. And it won't happen in California or the United States either. I mean, no, probably not. Uh, no, but the, the, the promise is, of course, you keep your growth rates going by, you, by developing green energy solutions. Uh, and that's the promise. Uh, whether we'll deliver on it is another question. This is a very scary time for China right now because, as you know, the, the economy has decelerated fairly sharply. Uh, in fact, China burned less coal last year than the year before, and that's the first time that's happened since reform started. So the economy is already slowing. Ideally, China would push through many reforms, and whether it's in the clean tech area or it's in reforming the service sector or breaking up some of the energy monopolies, but if you're already worried about an economic slowdown, it, you know, it's that much tougher to reform. Well, even California's uh, main climate law was passed during good times. It's tough to make these changes when the economy is soft. It's better to make them when times are good. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let's have our next question. Hi. Um, so tonight we talked a lot about the energy challenge and in, in specifically China. But what I'm interested in asking is what do you see as the future role and growth potential of biotech in specifically China in playing a role in making the environment better? But also um, what do you see are some pre uh, previous success stories and future directions for this industry? Mark Clifford? Well, I, I think it's, it's interesting, a very interesting question. Um, China's got some great companies, companies <clears throat> like BGI, which uh, used to be known as Beijing Genomics Institute, which has got some of the, uh, the most extensive gene sequencing um, investments in the world. And it's a big, um, it's a priority of the Chinese government to help deal with some of the, uh, especially some of the food problems, but also some of the the looming healthcare issues. So I, I think it'll be interesting. Um, it's, Orville, in a way, implicitly touched on this to see how innovative China can be in this area because uh, uh, it's a country that's run and, uh, by engineers, and I think they think that there are scientific and engineering problems to everything, um, and uh, certainly biotech is an area where they're putting a lot of money and they have some fantastic brains, and you know some of the best educated people in the world, and 
educated in China, many educated in the West who are now coming back to China to, to be able to paint on a very, very big canvas. There's nowhere like it in the world in terms of the investments that are going on. I, I'm not enough of an expert to say if it's, if it's more, quote-unquote, advanced than what's, what the U.S. is doing, but um, you have some really smart people with a lot of capital to play with. Mark Clifford, you write in your book about forests and the importance of forests. Indonesia, other places in, in Asia, uh, protecting forests is one of the best things that can be done, most cost-effective things that can be done for con- addressing climate change. Tell us how that's going in Asia. Uh, not very well, now that you ask. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think this is an area where uh, this audience and, and listeners can really play a role because... Um, What China does with solar or wind or water is pretty much up to China to figure out. When it comes to forests, it's consumers, and above all, consumers in rich countries who can help drive change. The threat of boycotts for companies like Nestle, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, any fast-moving consumer goods companies by uh, Western consumers has a very, very powerful effect. Uh, The reputational damage that these companies face if they're involved with deforestation, is huge. And we're starting, it's still early days, but we're starting to see some of those companies try to reach all the way down in their supply chain to make sure that every shred of of wood or paper that they get comes from sustainable uh, forestry practices. And it's happening. Now, two-thirds of the world's palm oil goes to India and China. So I'd like to see, if Indian and Chinese consumers don't eventually get on the... You know the bandwagon. That change is is not going to be as thoroughgoing as we'd like. But just in the in the last five years or so, we've seen uh, really big announcements by uh, major consumer goods companies. But unfortunately, at the local level, the Indonesian government, for example, which is the most uh, you know most important in this regard in in Asia, it doesn't have the capacity to manage these things. So here's an example where you really need the private sector working with civil society, the media. Uh, NGOs to to really push that change and hold companies' feet to the fire, and those companies have to hold everybody down to the smallest, you know, palm holder. And palm oil is in everything in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So, is there such a thing as sustainable palm oil, or is that greenwashing? I think there is sustainable palm oil. Palm is a is a miracle product. It's you know, to Orville's point about you know, you're going to tell somebody who's poor that they they can't have some calories. Palm produces eight times the calorie per hectare per acre that soy does, and we think soy is pretty good. We need palm for a, for a fast growing world. It's possible to grow palm on a land that's already degraded, just as, you know, we grow soy, we grow rice. I mean, agriculture, you know, it's monoculture. It's not great, but it can be done in a sustainable way. What we can't keep doing is logging virgin forest in Indonesia for timber and paper and Kleenex and uh, then putting palm oil on it. That's what's got to stop. We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Stella Lee, CEO of BYD Motors, based in Los Angeles. Orville Schell, director of the, the Center for U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. And Mark Clifford, author of the new book, The Greening of Asia. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here and online and on air for joining us here at Climate One today. You can listen to a podcast of this and other Climate One conversations by going to climateone.org. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. 
The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.